welcome to the uh, podcast ALL7 of the uh, lower limb. Uh, this one is really on the osteology of the leg, the tibia fibula, tibia fibula joints, the ankle and tarsus. So not the most exciting one, I don't think, but it has some important elements uh, in it. Um, we know, of course, quite a lot about the tibia, much of which is subcutaneous and expanded upper end with a prominent tibial tuberosity with the epiphyseal line cutting across the lower plateau or condyle and including part of the tuberosity. The fibula and the patellar ligaments are all at an epiphyseal level. And we know the condyles, of course, for the menisci with an oval medial and a smaller, more circular lateral tibial plateau which has an articular lip extension posteriorly and which, as I've stated before in an earlier podcast, allows for the greater movement of the lateral meniscus, particularly during flexion of the knee. Between is the intercondylar eminence. If you've got a tibia, have a look at this. And uh, this forms really discrete tubercles, although really nothing attaches to these. These non-articular areas in front and behind uh, for the cruciate attachments and the anterior and posterior horns of the menisci just here in front for example of the posterior cruciate. The capsule runs directly across the plateau except where the tendon of the popliteus perforates and there's an extension across and down to the head of the fibula here, that's of the capsule. The medial condyle posteriorly is heavily grooved by the rather complex insertions of semimembranosus. And the lateral condyle, if you check it out, carries on at the facet for the fibula head. There's some encroachment onto the front of the upper tibia, um, and by extension, really, the proximal tibiofibular <coughs> joint of bits of the curved origins of the um, extensor digitorum longus uh, and uh, we can receive really an extension from biceps femoris. So there are kind of medial semimembranosus and lateral biceps femoris extensions. Uh, there's also a little bit of a curved origin extension onto the back of the tibia fibula joint in a similar way by the uh, tibialis posterior. The shaft of the tibia is a triangle with the anterior and posterior borders and the medial subcutaneous surface if you like. And on that subcutaneous surface we recall this the insertion from front to back of sartorius gracilis and semitendinosus attachments, as I've spoken about before. The rest of that surface is the tibialis anterior origin in the concavity of the tibia. On the fibular side, there's an obvious interosseous border which attaches the interosseous membrane so that the fibres of that slope downwards from the tibia down 
to the fibula. It's a bit like the interosseous membrane in the upper limb. The tibialis anterior, as I've said, arises from the upper are about two-thirds or so of that extensor surface in the way I've defined it. And the rest of it is then bare. On the flexor surface of the tibia, if we turn that around, you can see the cilia line is probably the most prominent, and that has popliteus arising above with a bit of the popliteus fascia, which again is supported by the extensions of the semimembranosus, the cilius, muscle arises above the cilia line. But below this you can see a vertical ridge which is the origin deeply of the tibialis posterior and from the interosseous membrane. And medially is the flexor digitorum longus. You can see in the upper part of that bone surface a large nutrient artery canal. And like the front of the lower part of the flexor surface there's bare bone there. And uh, this is crossed by the tendon of the tibialis posterior and the flexor digitorum longus as they make their way down to the flexor retinaculum. So that's the basic structure of it. The lower tibia, if you look at it, is more rectangular in cross-section. Anteriorly, as we've said, is the tibialis anterior, the extensor hallucis longus, and then the tibial neurovascular bundle, and then the extensor digitorum longus, and you're running really from medial to lateral. So if you're looking at an ankle section in an exam, that's the order of what you're seeing on the front. We know the back one around the flexor retinaculum is Tom, Dick and Harry, the uh, tibialis uh, posterior, the flexor digitorum longus, and the flexor hallucis longus. But this is the front extensor surface. And... Um, as we get down, of course, to the medial malleolus or malleolus, however you pronounce it, there's an attachment to the superficial and deep laminae of the deltoid ligament and the upper limb at the same time of the extensor retinaculum. That's really all you need to know about the tibia. It has a primary ossific centre at week eight and the upper epiphysis is actually the growing end, which has a centre that fuses with the shaft at around about skeletal maturity. There can be a secondary centre in the tuberosity which comes out at puberty with a lower epiphysis appearing at about two years and that allows you that bit of information to be able to date some uh, plain x-rays and both of those fuse a little bit earlier than skeletal maturity around about 18 years of age or so. The tibia takes part in several joints in the knee. The tibia, of course, forms the weight-bearing tibiofemoral component of the knee joint. But the tibiofibular joints themselves are there really for stability. They actually have very little movement. The proximal one acting as a kind of small plane or planar joint with the lateral tibial condyle and the head of the fibula with a small kind of anterior and posterior ligament. Whereas the distal one, the distal tibiofibular joint, is a syndesmosis on the medial fibula and a rough concave part of the lateral tibia. tibia. And this has become so important because it's such a common injury in footballers and rugby players. The ankle is, of course, the talocrural saddle joint, really a synovial hinge, principally as a weight-bearing talotibial rather than a, uh, 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 rather than a fibulotalar joint, no, that's correct. 
It's interesting that in utero, the fibula actually articulates with the femur, but it migrates to form a separate proximal synovial tibia fibula joint. The lateral malleolus is closely applied to the talus, so it's a mortise effect, making the movement in both of these joints, as I've said, pretty minimal. Now, we, we hear a lot about this syndesmosis injury in football. Um, essentially, the inferior tibiofibular syndesmosis is a fibrous joint that's stabilised by the anterior tibiofibular ligament, by an interosseous ligament or membrane, the transverse ligament and a posterior tibiofibular ligament. And normal syndesmotic function prevents really excessive fibular motion. In other words, an AP translation or a lateral translation or any extensive internal or external rotation to be specific. So it stabilizes the bottom end really of that tibiotalar mortis, which is the ankle joint. Of course, medially, the whole end is supported by the deltoid ligament. And the sort of injury that happens, typically that affects this syndesmosis, is often an extensive kind of dorsiflexion with an abduction or adduction of the foot so that the fibula is widened, in effect, off of the tibia. A number of ways in which this can be injured, either in a kind of valgus or varus strain. Either the foot is inverted and people fall on someone, or the foot is everted. But in each case, the maybe a malleolus may be fractured, but then the whole of the mortise is disrupted. The lateral forces would injure the anterior ligament. If very high, the medial structures as well. And the posterior tibiofibular ligament can fail with or without a medial malleolar fracture. That's more the kind of valgus strain. And these injuries are increasingly common. They're recognised. They're graded usually by an MRI. In other words, it's grade one, essentially sort of normal plane radiographs or an incomplete lateral ligament injury and local syndesmosis tenderness. They've been come, although it's a constellation of injuries here, to be referred to as a syndesmosis injury, but they're, they're quite different. Grade two injuries, for example, have a complete anterior tibiofibular and interosseous ligament disruption. Maybe a little controversy here over how stable the ankle is in a grade two injury. Grade three injuries, are complete and they include the anterior tibiofibular ligament, the interosseous ligament, the posterior tibiofibular ligament, and usually there's deltoid ligament avulsion. So these joints then in that kind of injury are unstable with a wide clear gap medially of the syndesmosis, usually that's evident greater than about two millimetres. And those are the ones that clearly need operative stabilisation. I suppose we could move on next to the fibula. Uh, there's a common thing in old anatomy schools, which was to lateralise or side the fibula. Someone would throw you a fibula and ask you which side it's on. The vertical articular surface at the lower end allows you to side the lateral malleolus inferiorly, and then that allows you to side the bone. The malleolar fossa is, of course, to the left in the left fibula, to the right in the right fibula. It's a bit, bit of a difficult bone to examine. Hopefully you can have one in your hands now as we talk about it, because it's narrow, because I think of its narrow shaft and very close muscle attachments. 
The head, as you can see, has an oval facet that's set off rather obliquely, and that articulates with the tibia, and that's where the capsule of the superior tibiofibular joint is attached, as we've mentioned. The back of the head projects upwards as a styloid process, which attaches the arcuate ligament, and in front, the fibular collateral ligament. And even further forwards is the insertion of the biceps femoris tendon. Behind this is a kind of slip tier of a groove for the popliteus. The shaft has three surfaces to appreciate, anterior, lateral and posterior. So that this is defined by the components of the leg as we know it. So there is, as we know, the extensor musculature, the perineal and the flexor compartments. So the fibula is shaped, if you look at one, into the segments or compartments of the leg which we've already gone through. Quite a bit easier, I think, if, if one teaches it in that way. And you'll notice that the lateral or the perineal surface is quite smooth, with the perineus brevis arising from the lower two-thirds of the surface and the perineus longus arising from the upper two-thirds, but behind, so that they are the dispositions of the two tendons, as we know, that clasp the perineal trochlea on the lateral body of the calcaneus. The common perineal nerve enters the perineus longus at the level of the fibula neck, and that's very important in injury, particularly, for example, as I mentioned before, at a below-knee amputation or even with a tight plaster cast, the common fibula or common perineal nerve can be neuropraxically injured. And it is the superficial and deep branches here dividing, a bit like the radial nerve in the upper limb before it enters the supinator. The superficial perineal or fibula nerve passes between the perineus or fibularis longus and the fibularis brevis, it supplies both with the deep fibular nerve piercing the perineal septum to get to the depth of the extensor compartment on the front of the interosseous membrane, just lateral to the anterior tibial and later on the dorsalis pedis artery. Now, if you trace above the malleolar facet I mentioned before, there's a rough triangular surface and that attaches the interosseous ligament and the tibiofibular joint syndesmosis that I mentioned earlier. However, this, if you look at it, it forks sort of superiorly into a posterior ridge, which is becoming the interosseous border of the fibula, and it's split anteriorly so that it becomes an anterior border. So these actually converge on one another distally because the bone is so narrow. The anterior border is very narrow, and in some bones, there's actually no space really between these borders at all. That's anterior and interosseous, and they can actually fuse in some fibulae. That narrow strip, if it's there, as it is in most cases, in its upper three quarters, holds the extensor digitorum longus and the perineus tertius in the lower quarter. So deeply more forwards, the interosseous membrane, you've then got the extensor halius longus, which takes a narrow origin about the mid-half of the fibular shaft with that interosseous membrane. So it's a deeper but a narrower muscle, right? Now, if you turn the bone over or at least around so that you can then see its posterior surface, that's considerably wider with a kind of medial vertical crest evident sort of separating it further into medial and lateral parts. The tibialis posterior is attached medially 
and that part also forms the thickening of a bit of an attachment of the flexidigitorum longus, but not much. There's a kind of a ponderotic <laughs> attachment of the flexidigitorum longus there. The lateral part is the somewhat more lateral attachment of the flexor halius longus, and that has a very meaty origin right down to the level of the inferior tibiofibular joint. This bone is similar to the tibia with an endochondral shaft centre that it appears at about seven or eight weeks. There's an epiphysis at each end which is different to the tibia and the head of the fibula is the growing end, a bit like the tibia and even though unusually it ossifies later than the lower end. So that's a little unusual in that regard. The lower one then tends to fuse a little earlier than the upper one. And the lower one starts at about two, it fuses at about 18 if you're looking at plain x-rays and sort of trying to date them. If somebody's had a fracture of their fibula, you can tell what age they are. The upper one ossifies at about four and it fuses a little later at about 20. But the growing end of the bone, as I've said, is still at the upper end. Now, I wanted to mention a little bit about the tarsus. When we considered the hand, we talked, I think, phylogenetically a little about this, but let's remind ourselves about some um, comparisons. The tarsus and the carpus have similarities, as we recall. Uh, if you wish, I'd advise you uh, that you can go back and listen to the podcast on the upper limb, which is listed as AUL10, The Anatomy of the Carpus. And it might be worthwhile to listen to a little of the start of this to get back to speed with the next bit of our discussion. The tuss is, of course, fundamentally positional weight-bearing, and it's less about circumductive movement. But the mammalian arrangement is similar with the proximal row of three bones, a radiali or a tibiali, depending on where you are, an intermediali, and then an ulnari or fibulari. And then there's a distal row of five bones. That's pretty easy to remember. The metacarpals or the metatarsals. And there's a central bone, the os centrali, which lies between the two rows in the way I've described them. Now, in animals that walk on their four limbs, the tetrapods, the postaxial bones of the distal row fuse into a single bone, not uncommonly, so that there's no real hamate because it's fused to the fourth and the fifth metacarpal. And in the foot, the cuboid is fused likewise to the metatarsals. The equivalent in the human wrist of the scaphoid is then the fused os radiali and the os centrali. And that explains really the nature of the split in blood supply and the effect of a scaphoid fracture, which typically divides these two elements of formation. In man, in the foot, the os centrale is the navicular, and in the carpus, the os intermediale is the lunate, whereas in the tarsus, the os intermediale actually becomes just the lateral tubicle of the talus. So it becomes a little harder to understand the kind of homology. That's a little harder to appreciate. As there's no adduction or radial deviation, uh, uh, 
like there is in the hand, the lateral or torsional movements of the foot occur at the junction between the talus and the tarsus with sort of side-to-side eversion and inversion, which is supported, as I've said before, by the orientation of the pull of the tendons and their synchronised tarsal and metatarsal insertions, the tibant in front on the medial side of the foot, the peronus or fibularis longus uh, behind or uh, in the sole on the medial side of the foot as well. Um, in the foot, the os tibiali and intermediali have fused, as I've said, as the talus, and the os fibulari has become really the calcaneus, with, as I've said, the os intermediali being the navicular. The fourth and fifth bones of the distal row, in the way I've defined them, become the cuboid. And there is no counterpart in the foot of the pisiform, which really I think is probably better to consider as a sesamoid of the flexor carpial maris. So that's the homologies between the two and the way the bones develop. Have you got it? Now, before we go and get on to look at the tarsus, we need to just add a point about the ankle, I suppose. I'm not an orthopaedic surgeon, and we can, if people want, expand more on this, given its importance in injury. So if you wish me to do another podcast on the ankle, I'm quite happy to do so. You can just let me know on the Facebook uh, Meta site. It's quite easy just to communicate. That's just an atapod um, Facebook site. Of course, there is forearm leg homology. The tendons going to the thumb are homologous with those that go to the great toe, even if the muscular origins are very different. But at least we can appreciate the attachments very similarly to the distal proximal phalanges and the metacarpal or metatarsal, that there's at least some functional similarity between the extensor pollicis longus in the hand and the extensor haliusis longus in the foot, or between the extensor pollicis brevis and the extensor digitorum brevis, or between the extensor uh, haliusis brevis, another way if we want to look at the great toe. And equally, there's homology between the abductor pollicis longus in the upper limb and the tibialis anterior in the lower limb. And the reason why I mention these is because we're talking about the attachments to the um, distal phalanges by the longus tendons, to the proximal phalanges by the brevis tendons, and to the metacarpals or metatarsals by the APL, the abductor pollicis longus and the tibialis anterior. They're at least their insertions are very similar. And if you can remember the insertions of one in the upper limb, then the lower limb is sort of a natural structure as well. And we discussed in one of the other podcasts, certainly in two of them actually, the biomechanics of the ankle and similarities with the wrist and differences as well. Of course, if we're looking at homology between the upper and lower limbs and upper and lower legs, uh, the the leg and uh, the forearm, I, I should say, uh, the extensor expansion in the hand is almost identical um, to that in the foot, and the lumbricals and interossei contributions are also almost identical. There are some differences there in innovation. There aren't foot equivalents of the extensor carpi radialis longus and the extensor carpi radialis brevis, but I've mentioned the similarity of insertions in the upper limb with the flexor carpi maris on the other side. 
and uh, this is similar to the lower limb insertions of the medial cuneiform form and first metatarsal of the tibialis anterior on the front and the peroneus longus on the back. On the flexor side, the flexor digitorum superficialis and the soleus show great homology in bony origin and the creation of a kind of fibroosseous or fibrous panosseous arch. The flexors insert in much the same way, that is the flexor digitorum superficialis and flexor digitorum profundus in the upper limb decussations, and we're talking about the flexor digitorum longus and flexor digitorum brevis decussations in the lower limb or in the sole. Last sort of regards, I think the soleus is only interrupted by the calcaneus and then going on to form the flexor digitorum brevis in the foot in order to make that particular point. We've spoken a little about the plantaris and the palmaris longus equivalency, or more, I think, the lack of equivalency. There are arterial similarities, as we know, the median nerve and more deeply the ulnar nerve behind the pronator teres passes under that fibrous arch of the flexor digitorum superficialis. That's a classical way of finding the artery in trauma when someone stuck their hands under or through a plate glass window. It's happened to me a couple of times. And in the leg, the posterior tibial vessels and nerve, they pass under the soleal fibrous arch and they can be approached fairly similarly if there's need for a distal tibial bypass. The radial nerve, as we know, divides into superficial and deep branches. It runs against the interosseous membrane. So too does the common fibular nerve winding around the fibular neck divide into a superficial and deep branch. So there's a lot of similarities here. And it's one good way, I think, of remembering facts by assessing where that limb homology applies. This is one of the ways which I've tried through these series of podcasts to teach anatomy of the limbs, to make it a little bit more understandable and a little bit more uh, able to be recalled. When we look at the ankle very much in brief, it's a, it's a little more than a hinge since the axis of rotation varies a little bit, I think, between plantar and dorsiflexion extremes. The stability is created by the hugging lateral and medial malleoli, that sort of mortise effect, and by strong medial and lateral ligaments, which include the deltoid ligament on the medial side. And that forms two discrete layers with a narrow, deep, square-shaped component into the comma part of the talus bone and a triangular, more sort of superficial element that uh, gives its deltoid or delta-like name uh, in appearance and it runs along the sustentaculum tali to the tuberosity of the navicular, contributing in its strength to the so-called spring ligament. We'll get into that uh, spring ligament in the next podcast when we discuss the foot and the sole of the foot arches and the stability of mechanics. But just to mention that at the moment, laterally, on the lateral side, that's the medial side or deltoid ligament, laterally um, there are three bands that actually radiate away from the lateral malleolus, a bit like the spokes of a wheel, and these elements are called the lateral ankle ligament together, but they are really an anterior and posterior band passing to the talus, the flattened rather horizontally lying anterior so-called talofibular ligament going to the neck of the talus and a more kind of rounded cord of the calcaneofibular ligament which does what it says by running to the back of the calcaneus and then there's a posterior talofibular ligament so there's like three fingers of this thing 
and that also does what it says lying horizontally out to the lateral talar tubercle, above which lies the posterior tibiofibular ligament, part of the syndesmosis. So if the foot is actually plantar flexed, those two elements tend to lie side by side against one another, which describes their orientation. When you dorsiflex the foot, that opens that space up, and they diverge from one another, a bit like the blades of a pair of scissors, as last ac- quite accurately, I think, describes it. So the posterior talofibular ligament runs horizontally, or it may be a kind of light uh, obliquity, whereas the posterior tibiofibular runs slightly upwards from the lateral malleolus tip to the lower end of the tibia. And so as you're dorsiflex in the foot, those two run away from one another, opening that space as you plantar flex them, they bunch up against one another, and that's how that works. The blood supply around here is the anterior and posterior tibial arteries and a contribution laterally from the perineal artery. The nerve supply of the ankle is, of course, the deep fibula or deep perineal nerve. The movements, as as we previously described, the ankle ligaments for those keeping score are those that stabilise the syndesmosis, and they include the tibiofibular ligaments, which hold the tibia and the fibula together, and which resist rotational force and translational forces that would normally distract those two. And these syndesmotic ligaments include the anterior and the posterior tibiofibular ligaments, as well as the interosseous ligament. That latter is really an effective distal communication or continuation of the interosseous membrane. The distal ankle ligaments we've already mentioned, and they include the anterior talofibula, the calcaneofibula, and the posterior talofibula, all of which amount to that commonly injured lateral collateral ankle ligament, where there's a kind of valgus a strain or angulation of the limb and somebody falls on it or somebody falls on a footballer who's got their ankle that way. And that's the ankle that needs to be strapped heavily on the lateral side. The medial collateral ligament is the deltoid ligament, which I've already discussed. And the superficial part of that ligament is really tibionavicular, with the deep part really kind of tibiocalcanean. All right. Now, I think we probably need to move on to the tarsus proper. Now, we should start with the calcaneus, and I think if you can get hold of a calcaneus, uh, uh, we could go through that together. See if you can do that. As the largest, this unusual-looking bone is the first to ossify. It's a bit like the capitate in the carpus. And it has a bottom talar articulation, an anterior facet for articulation, as you can see with the cuboid bone. It's a pretty square block of bone with a medial shelf extension, the sustentaculum tarmi. Sustentaculum just means support. You might remember, for example, the Sertoli cells. They're also called the sustentacular cells, the same reason. The anterior soft articular facet creates a medial talocalcaneonavicular joint, which is important, as I'll explain a little later, in midfoot amputations. That's the subtalar joint. And it has a smooth facet divided, as you can see, into two, and anteromedially you can see as the kind of real joint space, with the extension medially of the spring ligament, which has a specific attachment 
to the sustentaculum, but also to the navicular on the medial side. Behind in the articulated state is the floor of the tarsal sinus, and that lies obliquely between the talonavicular joint and the talocalcanean joint. And this looks like it should hold something or transmit something, but it's really just held together by very strong interosseous talocalcanean ligaments and laterally by a cord-like so-called cervical ligament. So it's just filled with fat and ligaments. Laterally is somewhat of the adherence of the extensor digitorum brevis and the area is filled in a bit by the stem of the inferior extensor retinaculum. So this little area is a bit overrated in my opinion, the tarsal sinus. The anterior calcaneus gives attachment to the bifurcate ligament, and I'll be going into these ligamentous structures after we've done the sole of the foot in the next podcast. So this podcast and the next one are kind of dual set that are best re-listened to together in order to get an appreciation of the factors that stabilise the foot. Behind this articular part of the calcaneus is the origin of the extensor digitorum brevis, and as I've said, laterally comes the stem of the inferior extensor retinaculum. The posterior calcaneal surface obviously attaches the tendo Achilles and below for the plantar ponderosus with the inferior surface of the calcaneus, if you're turning that around now, showing the two obvious tubercles, a larger medial one and a small lateral one. If you like, the whole area can be called the calcanean tuberosity, but the medial tubercle gives origin to the abductor haliosus, the flexor uh, digitorum uh, brevis, and laterally the abductor digiti minimi, as well as to the lateral head of that rather special muscle, which we'll go into in the next podcast, the flexor accessorius, or as some books call it, the quadratus plantae, not a bad term, um, which is attached a bit more deeply. In front, deeply, is the long plantar ligament, and more superficially is the plantar ponderosus. And anteriorly, this leads, of course, on that side to the cuboid articulation, which is filled here by the short plantar ligament, which is really a kind of glorified calcaneocuboid interosseous ligament. And that leads to the anterior articular surface. The lateral surface of the calcaneus we've seen before because it's got a perineal trochlea on it with the inferior perineal retinaculum crossing the tendons of the perineus brevis which sits above and the perineus longus which sits below in separate synovial sheaths at this point. And more posteriorly, there's a calcaneofibular ligament which runs downwards and backwards but which doesn't leave any impression on the bone. Medially, we've already said, is dominated by that sustentaculum tali, with the fleshy medial head of the flexor accessorius dominant here. And if you look under the sustentaculum, you also see and feel a very deep groove, which is for the flexor haliosus longus. That has to skirt around the sustentaculum tali to then project back to the big toe. And that considerably changes its line of pull and also its contribution to medial foot arch stability. It also supplements various tendons there. But this part of the sustentaculum also gives a broad attachment to the spring ligament in front and to the superficial deltoid ligament, as I said, behind. 
the flexor digitorus, digitorum longus runs on top of the sustentaculum tali, uh, so that there's a kind of split arrangement on the medial side, a little like the split perineal tendon arrangement that occurs laterally. And the tendon sits so much in front of the sustentaculum that the sustentaculum itself can't be felt in the foot, although on the lateral side you can rather easily feel your own perineal trochlea, usually. Have a try of that. The calcaneus is one of three bones that is already ossified at birth, unlike the hand, as we mentioned before, where they're not. And all the bigger tarsal bones, that is the calcaneus, the talus and the cuboid, are the three big guys that already have ossific centres at birth. The calcaneus begins typically at around about six months of uh, fetal development. Now grab a talus. It's another unusual looking bone and its job is to carry the whole body weight so it's built differently. It has a body, a neck and a head and the body carries this large saddle trochlea that is broad at the front and narrower behind. You can note that pretty readily. The back margin is an attachment for that posterior tibiofibular ligament we've already seen. And you see the medial and the lateral articular surfaces for the individual malleoli forming that mortise. Medially, the articular surface is pretty sort of comma-shaped, and the broadest part, like the rest of it, is anteriorly located. The deep deltoid attaches here. Laterally, there's a sort of strip of articulation. Behind the trochlea, you can see a little posterior projection or process, which is also a bit grooved by the flexor halius longus. If you put the calcaneus and talus together, you can see how there's a continuous groove from the flexor halius longus. And that's, in the articulated case, directly in line with the groove we've already seen on the undersurface of the sustentaculum tali. So you can look at an articulated one, you can look at an unarticulated calcaneus and talus or put the two together and you can see how the flexor halius longus grooves underneath that and is then diverted back towards the great toe in, in, an, in a gentle arc. If you look at it, it forms a pretty nice gentle arc, but that changes the direction of pull and the function of the flexor halius longus. And the way it functions, obviously, is to contribute markedly to the stability of the medial foot longitudinal arch. Below that process that we were looking at is a clear separation on the talus into two tubicles, a separate little lateral tubicle that can form sometimes a separate os trigonum, as it's called, and that's already the os intermediale I've already mentioned, uh, and the hands counterpart there is the lunate. And there's a lateral tubicle that attaches part of the posterior talofibular ligament. The medial tubicle is far less prominent and it has some attachment to the deep part of the deltoid ligament. So most of these are stability structures for ligamentous attachment rather than anything monumental. The inferior talus has a large oblique facet that is the talocalcanean joint and this completes the tarsal sinus already mentioned. The head articulates with the navicular and below with the sustentacular and the calcaneus 
in what I've described as a complex subtalar joint, which just means that there is a common talo-calconeo-navicular joint. I'll come back to that later. The blood supply here is usually pretty good from the dorsalis pletus artery into the head and neck, from the posterior tibial artery into the medial body, and from the perineal artery into the lateral body and the sulcus. A little comment, I think, on this important subtalar joint is appropriate here. We can think of the division of the foot into four discrete transverse segments. We can think of the tarsus, or perhaps the rear foot, the lesser tarsus, which is the midfoot, the metatarsus, and the digits. Now, the tarsus is really the talus and the calcaneus. The lesser tarsus, in the way I've mentioned it, contains the navicular, cuboid, and the three cuneiforms. And the subtalar joint is the articulation between the talus and the calcaneus superiorly and the navicular inferiorly. And the idea is that the talo-calcaneo-navicular joint is a single functional unit moving about a single axis. I'll come back to that um, just uh, in relation to uh, midfoot amputations a little later on. This bone, the talus, ossifies a little later than the calcaneus. It's a bit smaller, so you think of it in terms of size. So it ossifies at about seven months. Now, the cuboid, we don't normally go looking for a separate cuboid. Uh, you can look at this in an articulated foot. That's like a thick wedge, broadest medially, where it articulates with the medial cuneiform. So it's squeezed in, really, between the navicular and the cuneiforms. That's one way of looking at it. And its anterior surface articulates with the fourth, that's a bit quadrangular in shape, and the fifth metatarsal, a bit triangular in shape. And underneath, we see the divot for the perineus or fibularis longus tendon. And here, there can often be a small sesamoid. It's part of the lateral foot longitudinal arch. So I recommend that you examine one now in an articulated foot. Medially, the cuboid articulates with the lateral cuneiform and very occasionally with the navicular itself. And posteriorly and inferiorly, as I've said, is a deep groove for the fibularis longus. And a small sesamoid bone, which is called the os peroneale, not surprisingly, can be present in the living or cadaverous state. The fibrooseous tunnel is bridged here at the back, particularly more than at the front, and is part of the long plantar ligament. The tendon runs, of course, from laterally to medially, and it's important in contributing to the transverse foot arch integrity, but also by pulling laterally, it can, if you can imagine, stabilise the back end of the lateral longitudinal arch with that long plantar ligament. And it assists, obviously, in inversion, because, of a, as I've mentioned many times, it has the identical attachment to the tibialis anterior on the dorsum. The bone, that's the cuboid, is the third smaller of the third of, the, of these bigger bones, of the, uh, the smallest of these bigger bones, and that is the third one that ossifies. And that ossifies at about the ninth month of fetal development, and it was used in the past as a marker of fetal maturity. So you have those three bones based on size. 
that are already ossified at birth, which is different to the hand. The navicular is such an unusual bone that you can look at it separately if you want to. It's a kind of boat-shaped bone. It has a medial tubicle and it attaches there medially the spring ligament. So all these tubicles and bits of the bones in the foot and the tarsus generally have ligamentous attachments rather than anything else. And laterally, the navicular attaches the bifurcate ligament. The distal articular surface has three ridges, not surprisingly. The medial one, which is base downwards, and the other two, which are apex down, and these form the articulation with each of the cunea forms. Uh, and this whole thing is as a single synovial cavity with all of the cuneiforms, and that joins along the intermediate cuneiform, the bases of the second to the fifth met metatarsals, so that the whole of this area is actually a single united cavity. If there's some infection, a foreign body thing, etc., then all of that can go on as a chronic osteomyelitis to all of those particular joints. They involve all of the um, cuneiforms and the, uh, the second to the fifth metatarsals. So that is of some clinical relevance in chronic sepsis or osteomyelitic sepsis, which we don't see today. But in theory, that is the relevance of the, a relevance of the anatomy. The tuberosity takes the tibialis posterior muscle, of course, I should have mentioned that, but it also takes the spring ligament. This bone, the navicular ossifies at about the age of four, if people are looking at plain x-rays. And there can be an accessory navicular bone on the medial side in up to 10% of people. That can sometimes cause a, an accessory navicular syndrome of medial foot pain. When you look at the cuneiforms, I don't think there's anything particular to say. They're sort of wedge-shaped, uh, the medial being the largest lying edge up, with the intermediate, the smallest, and the lateral lying kind of edge downwards, so that there's a proximal navicular articulation and a distal metatarsal articulation. These sort of cuneiforms are kind of wedge-squeezed in. The medial takes, as we know, the tibialis anterior anteriorly, the peroneus longus, posteriorly on a small posterior tubicle in some cases. The intermediate is the shortest of the three, as I've said, with the base upwards, so that the second metatarsal is kind of mortised between the medial and lateral cuneiforms, like it's sort of been pushed into place. You can have a look at that at an articulated foot. The lateral is kind of base up and it articulates, as I've said, with the cuboid by a very strong interosseous ligament. And the lateral cuneiform ossifies first at about a year or so. The medial cuneiform as uh, in the third year, so it jumps from lateral onto the medial. And then the last is the smallest of these, the intermediate cuneiform at about the fourth year of life. So that's the way to remember it if you're looking at plain x-rays. The lateral bit of the foot ossifies first and then, then uh, that's around about the first year. Then the medial cuneiform and then the intermediate cuneiform and navicular come in around about four years of age. I don't think we'll worry too much about the rest of this except to say that the epiphyses of the metatarsals and the phalanges are the same as in the hand. They're at the base in the first and at the apex of the others, 
metacarpals and metatarsals. But they're later to appear, generally, these epiphyses in the foot than the hand. There's about a two-year delay. Uh, although, even though they appear later, they join a little bit earlier. So they fuse a little earlier. That is, their lifespan, if you like, as specific centres, is less in the foot. And I suppose that has to do with some aspect of maturity or stabilisation. There can be secondary centres on the posterior ridge of the calcaneus near the tender Achilles that can sometimes be the source of pain. The lateral tubicle of the talus can have a secondary origin, the base of the fifth metatarsal, as we know, uh, as I've said, the tuberosity of the navicular, uh, which can sometimes be linked to the so-called accessory navicular syndrome, a source of medial foot pain. And as in the hand, there's an extensor tendon expansion and the flexor digitorum brevis splits as a chiasm around the flexor digitorum longus, just as I mentioned before, like the FDS and the FDP do in the hand. I should mention that uh, in closing, really, in an appreciation of the anatomy of the leg, um, even though we've not gone into the foot, we should appreciate the amputations that are distal to a BKA, below knee amputation, that are ambulatory alternatives where a prosthesis isn't required. There are some alternatives where there's sepsis, unusual cases of trauma and so on, where you may do something uh, in the midfoot which is ambulatory and not requiring a prosthesis. Now, these include the transmetatarsal amputation, but they include also the Chopin and Lisfranc amputations, as well as two amputations that are not done uh, these days because they're impractical for prostheses, the terminal syme amputation at the bottom end of the tibia and the Pyrigoff modification, which was to bring the calcaneum up over the end of a terminal syme. That provided that latter one, a Pyrigoff amputation, uh, a stump that was too wide to prosthetize. But it's worth knowing that these things existed. I'm often a little surprised that my students usually haven't even heard much about any of these. They can't often describe a basic conduct in an operative surgery viber exam of something that is less than a baloney amputation. I do notice the word exam usually gets their ears pricking up amongst all the rather dry and dusty anatomy. So once you mention the word exam, people take a greater interest. For brief, uh, I think um, students listening to this can look them up, but we can appreciate how old these amputations are. Chopin and Lise Frank were Napoleon's army surgeons. Uh, if there's not, for example, sufficient posterior flap tissue for a transmetatarsal, that's where you're basing the flap on the medial and lateral plantar vessels, often on a lateral plantar vessel with a long posterior myocutaneous flap, uh, there is the possibility of performing a mid-tarsal amputation or Lisfranc's amputation with a posterior plantar preservation. And you can leave the base of the second metatarsal, which functions as a keystone to foot stability, and take the fifth metatarsal out and even expose a bit of the cancellous bone behind that, which actually improves uh, healing. And so that can be useful, those little two little tricks in a mid-tarsal Lisfranc amputation. 
um, you don't commonly see that kind of thing. I've seen it uh, in uh, people who have presented with frostbite and uh, also uh, the occasional sort of motor mower injury um, that you can preserve some of the foot and they can get around on a mid-tarsal amputation. Um, the more proximal one is less ambulatory. It's a little harder, uh, again, uh, being involved with that for trauma. Uh, uh, but Chopin's mid-tarsal amputation, uh, there you've got to divide some of the attachments of the tibialis posterior. Um, so that if that's not done correctly, uh, you can have an equinovarus shift in the stump uh, and tendon balancing in this operation where you're really taking something through the subtalar joint in the way I've described it, uh, tendon balancing becomes important. Uh, the same goes in a lease franc, for example, that it's sometimes wise to transfer the extensor haliusus longus to the lateral cuneiform which creates a more plantar-based stump that doesn't flop around a little bit too much. So there are some particular tricks to this that are based on the anatomy. Uh, okay, our next podcast uh, will be on the foot. And I think after that, we're going to have an extended lower limb quiz, a little um, break, not for very long, and we'll be going then into the anatomy of the thorax. Thanks so much for listening, and uh, I'll see you next time.